people, they say all the time when in these discovery calls, I just want to be happy. I want my family to be happy. My response is fuck happy. Happy is a fleeting feeling. And I say this all the time. You're trying to maximize joy, right? Without maximizing all the uncomfortable feelings. There's really only comfortable and uncomfortable. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it is RJ Singh here. And this week, we are joined with a good friend of mine, Thomas Miller. Now, Thomas and I have had conversations before uh, we've been in contact over the last few years and i've really developed a deep level of respect for thomas now thomas is a executive coach he helps also in the family orientated environments in terms of counseling and over the years i've really come to respect his message of building resilience within the family life and home life and one of the things that I wanted to talk to him about uh, on the show was the hallmarks of a high-performing family. We always talk about in this day and age, in particular when we talk about performance in executive landscape, we talk about the individual's performance, the person and their performance in the job and how they are able to show up within that context. But over the years, I think many of us have come to realize there is not a direct correlation with high performance in the workplace and high performance at home. And that's what I wanted to talk to Thomas about on the show, was how could we create high performance within the context of our family lives? With so many people spending 60 hours a week, the weekends, inundated in work, in the pursuit of quote-unquote high performance, what is actually happening to the performance of the family? And, you know, this is a conversation that's personal. Having little kids, having raising humans, I feel, you know, it's really important for me to understand just how intentional and ambitious am I about my home life? And I Am I taking the actual steps necessary to be building that strong family unit? So Thomas is super, super switched on. You know, he he's quick to tell you and he's not wrong that there are a lot of false prophets out there. Gurus nowadays, everyone has a life coach. Everyone is a life coach. And Thomas's approach is quite different. It comes with years of experience and a no bullshit, but from the heart approach. I really like the fact that he's well versed in addiction. As many know, I have, um, you know, I'm in recovery and I've suffered addiction, and he understands that space very well and translates to a lot of knowledge when it comes to workaholism and, you know, imbalance in executive life that may come up. So he's got all the licenses, he's got all the degrees, but the reality is, is that he implements all the stuff that he coaches in his own family life. And you can see that as he documents the journey with his wife, Nicole, and his kids. Um, over the past 16 years, he's coached, he's provided therapy for thousands of individuals, families, and executives. He's done wilderness 
training for kids that are really out there and in trouble. And he's really, really been integrated in all facets of therapy. And yeah, it was really a treat to get him back on the show. We spoke in a previous life and I felt that it was time, you know, coming out of COVID, lots of people are going to be wanting to rare to get back into the workforce, be putting in those hours. But I just felt that it was really important to get Thomas on the show to talk about how do we continue to focus on the family and the development of the family and how can we share the view of high performance in the workplace in our family life. I really, really hope you enjoy this episode. I trust you will. As always, let us know what you think, what's working, what's not. Anyways, guys, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Thomas. Peace out. Tom, Thomas Miller, my dude, welcome to the Ultra Habits Podcast, man. I am super, super stoked to have you on our show. Thanks so much, dude. So happy to be here. Yeah, so Thomas, you and I, have, uh, you know, we built up a relationship over the last few years. I've interviewed you in a different forum. I have come to really appreciate and value your focus on business performance, but the maintenance of the family unit. Now, the reason that I really wanted to get you on the show is what I've started to see more of, you know, through Ultra Habits and speaking to people that are trying to be superheroes in their business or, or whatever that context is, you know, they, they say that they're very much focused on doing it for the family and, you know, it's all about the family, but ultimately what, when you really look under the hood, the family kind of gets the leftover, right? Like whatever's left in terms of energy and time. And at Ultra Habits, we're really interested in a kind of holistic and collective approach to success. And so I started to wonder, well, we kind of know what makes a high performer, but what really makes for a high performing family? And what does that actually mean? So I guess I may pose that question to you. Like if someone were to ask you, Thomas, what's a high performing or high functioning family unit? What would you say that looks like? Uh, I could tell you uh, one of the things I, I say all the time, which is from uh, the 12-step movement. I'm not in recovery, but you know, I've spent 20 years working with uh, people struggling with uh, what are called co-occurring issues. So obviously mental health as well as uh, addiction. And you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, and one of the things I do with every family that I work with, whether I'm working with just the parents or I'm working with the, both parents or um, the family, is I'll look at, you know, wh what are the icebergs, if there are any? And meaning that if there is only certain things that peak up above water and there are a lot of things submerged, that is not a high functioning family. Um, the more that we can have honest, open, transparent dialogue, the better. And that means that you know that your daughter or son isn't cutting themselves. You know that your daughter or son isn't struggling with an eating disorder, um, or you know that they are struggling with body image issues and that's out there. Um, you know that you know, your kid obviously is being bullied or is having a great time or is, is dyslexic. So whenever there's secrets, I can assure you it's not a high functioning family. Um, and so the more that things are, 
I always say known to self and known to others, that we're we're heading toward a more high functioning family. So that is a a basic answer. Um, and obviously we could dive into more specifics, but if there is any estrangement, disconnection, uh, lack of attachment, it's not a high functioning family. Um, and you have no circle of influence as parents, right, to address whatever it is that you don't know. So that would start there with looking at are there secrets and are there icebergs? Uh, and to what degree is there submerged, you know, things versus to what degree are things out there? And obviously, uh, um, having worked with teenagers for 20 years, you're not going to know everything. There's going to be some some things below the surface, but you don't want to only know 10%, obviously, of your child or teen's life or your partner uh, or so on and so forth. That That doesn't feel good. Yeah. And I suppose like when you're focused on career or you're focused on your own output, you know, we can get kind of overly involved in what we're doing. And as a byproduct, we just forget to engage the people that are most important to us. Do you feel that these forums where we're actually engaging and having these kind of conversations, they need to be created, like, explicitly? Like, like how do, you know, I'm, I've, for instance, I've got a young son who is turning five and we are very aware around when he goes to school, you know, right now he's going through a scenario where he's introverted, but he likes to experiment between the, the, the kids that are really out there and in your face, but he likes quiet, soft play. And he goes between both. When he tries to go into the group, that's a bit loud. He kind of sometimes gets ostracized because I think he's viewed as, the quiet kid and we're very aware of when he comes home from school we have kind of conversation with him we probe him but not directly just to make sure we're across where he's at and we can kind of tell when he comes home from school and acts out we try to then create these forums where we can engage and, and pull that information out of him so how would you recommend as things get busier and more complex that parents do this and is it just kind of through spending one-on-one -on -one time is it like indirectly you you know you go for a hike and you start to talk about things like how how do you actually get to this what's beyond or beneath the the surface conversation it's a great question um it, it it's sort of like you know when you think about uh running a company right every aspect of your company is a customer touch point and I think as a parent, we have so many parent touch points and you just have to use all of them, right? So whether it's the drive, the bedside chat, the decompression time when they come home from school, it is the hike, it is the, yeah, we're going to that cabin, um, you know, and we're shutting off everything, shutting everything down. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's no screen time and we're just, we're doing that. Or it is a weekly check-in. I mean, the families that I coach, um, particularly that have young adults that haven't launched and are on that mental health break, let's say from college, which is can be a recipe for disaster and allowing symptomatology to just bloom. And it can be kind of a race to nothingness, or it can be this wonderful, awesome uh, trampoline that allows them to reassess. Some of those families do weekly meetings and I help them manage, particularly if they have a loved one in active addiction or any kind of 
Um, I'm going to say the word active addiction, meaning that someone's actively using. And when I say active, you know, active, untreated mental health, that's saying someone is obviously not taking advantage of healthy resources and doing their best to take care of themselves. So if someone, if a family that I'm coaching has someone that's taking up a lot of space in the family, and there's, let's say, 21, 22, a weekly meeting to help motivate and coach and say, hey, where where are you on, on your journey? This is what it feels like from, from our perspective, and then holding up the mirror. So in those cases, a structured weekly check-in that can hopefully help this inerted boulder that's settled in the, the bottom of a valley begin to move is very helpful. Aside from that, I don't think it has to be structured with some, you know, a random child or random teenager. I think there's so many parent touch points and it's up to us to be proximal, but obviously not helicoptering. Um, and I think what you originally described, you know, it's unfortunate. I still see that same dynamic of someone who's killing it right at work yet the family right uh, if we were audit their wellness is 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 not in a great spot and i don't understand how anyone could make that that trade-off um it still feels um i don't know very obvious to me that it's a circle you know and if you're well at home you're well at work and if you're well at work you're well at home um, so I don't see it as a, a, actually there being a dichotomy but there are folks who yes unfortunately myopically you know, uh, get sucked in to, you know, only wanting to be well in one facet or aspect of their life and then ostensibly seed ground to whatever it is and begin to project parenting or export parenting onto somebody or something else, right? Which is a wacky thing. Um, so yeah, but there's so many opportunities. There's so many opportunities. And it takes it takes courage, particularly with a teenager who's like, get the F out of my room, you know what I mean? Or get out or, you know, whether they say that literally or they say that metaphorically with the caution tape, so to speak, across their, their door, it's up to us, right? As, as parents to, to A, be vulnerable and, and take our own internal temperature and use words like, I could be wrong, you know, uh, however, this is what it looks like, feels like, smells like, et cetera. Um, and just be willing to do that and, and really reach for the heart as well as, of course, which we could certainly talk more about, what are some actual effective behavioral, you know, positive and natural negative consequences. But yeah, we have to do that. We have to be first attached, you know, and then we have to be willing to risk, you know, making contact in, in a multitude of forms. There's a question on the back of something you've just said, but something that's also been playing on my mind for a while. You know, I saw an article the other day and I just, I can't stop thinking about this kid. He's 12 years old. He committed suicide. His daughter, or sorry, his sister found him hanging, found him hanging. And, and they knew this beautiful boy, the parents of the bully and the parents of this kid knew what was happening and the school. I don't understand how it got prolonged, but I, I have a question that I guess is two part. Do you feel that as a family unit, people are starting to place more responsibility on the systems to prepare their children versus them preparing their own children. Like our, you know, you talked about exporting that responsibility. I have a view on that. I, I feel that we are, but I'm not a professional. And then the second part of that question is with what we're seeing in schools where 
kids are now, it's acceptable for them to hang themselves at the age of 12. Are we seeing an increased pressure on kids or is the pressure still the same as the 80s and 70s, but the kids are ill-prepared? Like, and, and is that a function of parents actually preparing their children less? Like, I, I just want to know the connection between all that and your view on that. Those are those are two huge questions. Um, let me let me start with the first one. Um, is there more exporting going on? Um, so one of the first things I do with any family wellness coaching client or parent coaching client is I say, take out a piece of paper, um, draw a circle that takes up a like at least half of the page. Um, and we're gonna identify all the things in your circle of control that you control vis-a-vis your your family and or your child. And Almost always families will come up with three things, four things. By the time we're done, I mean, they have 32 things that they've never even thought were within their control. So yes, I do think families don't understand and control doesn't mean be controlling. Um, It just means have influence towards said thing from everything from boundary setting to expectations to how, what what you eat in terms of what's in your fridge? What are you modeling? I mean, last night um, I was done with my clients. It was six forty-five. We happen to live in a town that has a lovely turf field, which is not covered in snow right now, which is awesome. Um, and it does not have lights, but I have car lights and we have street lights. And at six forty-five, I got home and I was like, "Let's go. We're going to go train because they don't. They didn't have practice last night." And we went out, my sons and I, and we had a blast and I pushed them like crazy um, and they pushed me and um, you know, and that's a wonderful time to deepen our relationship and also really push them. So, so we control so much as parents from what we feed ourselves to what we, we feed our kids, how we communicate. Do we follow through? Do we not follow through? Uh, is our word, our bond, et cetera. So do I think families take extreme ownership of their circle control? No, absolutely not. Um, do I see much more projection uh, towards something outside of themselves? Yes, I think there is less extreme ownership. And by proxy, yes, I think um, that's where I come in, right, is to give power back to the family. What I always try to help families understand is that children push against the walls looking for where they end and their family begins. That is actually part of any healthy separation and individuation phase, which is the absolute um, major thing that any teen must do. They have to separate and individuate. And if there isn't a wall, so to speak, and I'm not talking again, uh, being uber controlling or draconian, but if there isn't a boundary and they push against that wall and that wall recedes, that's a huge invitation for their to go back to Freud, their id, meaning their, their those dopamine hits, right? And dopamine hits come in the form of sugar, drugs, you know, media, um, all kinds of unhealthy things, right? Dopamine hits also come in the form of obviously pushing through and finally getting, you know, that violin, um, you know, cord down or getting, you know, that, that finally being able to throw on the potter's wheel or being able to make that beautiful bend it like Beckham, uh, you know, cross. So, uh, I hope that answers your first question. Yes. I think families export a lot of power. Um, I don't think they understand, A, how important they are to their children, despite what their kids say. Um, I've been doing this since uh, 1999, and one of the greatest protective factors in 1999 and in 2022 is a secure, healthy, 
relationship um, with an adult um, caregiver. That doesn't even have to be a parent. It could be a grandparent. But that is the greatest protective factor to this day when you look at what are what are called you know um, assets or protective factors versus risk factors. Um, a child that doesn't have a healthy, secure attachment with an adult, I mean, already um, is is statistically at risk for many, many, many things. So pushing into that relationship, going deep, reaching for the heart. Um, I always say to families, you have to have a clown nose. You have to have a shoulder to cry on. You have to have a hammer, and I'm talking a Thor hammer, which I have. Um, and some of these families I work with have ball peen hammers and it's like, we need to, we need to get that Thor hammer. You know what I mean? Cause you, you gotta have the Thor hammer and you gotta have the joke and you gotta have the, like, I don't want to hear it. And you gotta know how to actively ignore it, and you gotta know how to like stop everything. And because this is serious, you know, um, and it's all of those things. And it's a lot like being a CEO. You have to have situational awareness. You have to know the right tact and tone for that you know, staff or that child in that moment at that time. So it's the hardest job in the world. Uh, your second question. Tom, um, just before you go yeah, into please. my second yeah, question, yeah. yeah, in the context of what you just said, it would then mean that the family unit is not as strong generally as it used to be. Why do you think that has happened or how has that happened? I don't want it to be black and white. I mean, I, I remember, you know, did you, did you wear seatbelts in the backseat of the car? No, I don't really remember. I didn't. I mean, I you look at it, look at a playground for children, you know, back when I, we grew up, it was like concrete and like metal, you know. Um, so I don't want people to hear this and think that parents as a whole are less connected. I think on some level, we've done better, uh, this generation of parents and maybe the next generation, even more so and and being raising the EQ and being more connected. Um, I think that there is just so much stuff. I think there's a saturation of just distractions and stuff, and everyone is unbelievably busy, right? And so I think that it's easy, right, to just export. It's easy, right, to watch the video of somebody working out versus just going and working out, <laughs> you know? I mean, how many people are preparing to, right? There's so many people who are, analyzing, analyzing, paralyzing, right? Versus just doing. Um, so with families, I always say action over everything, right? The perfectionist is really the procrastinator in disguise, right? Queuing up to act. Um, and then there's people who are obviously not, you know, more on the, on the paralyzed side. So I just think that we've gotten ridiculously distracted. I think that there's so much fluff and noise and it's hard to find your own voice. Um, one of the, my favorite activities um, that I, we used to do when I was at um, an addiction treatment center and I was the family wellness director is there would be a minefield and we would have families walk through a minefield blindfolded while their loved one was giving them advice to navigate the, the minefield. But while they were in the minefield, there was all these other families giving their other loved one instruction, and it was very difficult. And then we as the staff would be yelling, <laughs> you know, distracting things in the midst of this exercise to try to put them in this place that that's where we all exist. I mean, the morning routine, as I'm sure you know, or the afternoon or nighttime routine, or just the getting to and fro dance or soccer or or um, you know whatever it is, there's so many competing voices, 
And I think we have a hard time trusting our own instincts and trusting our own voice, as well as I think, again, we, we don't you know, really narrow down and have the optics for what is it I'm trying to achieve and let me reverse engineer. Um, so, you know, my wife and I are clear on clear as to we're trying to raise resilient kids. And do we make mistakes every day? Absolutely. Um, however, I, we know what resiliency looks like. And I'm fortunate enough to have worked with families from the Middle East, all over Europe, all over the United States. When I was the clinical director of a wilderness therapy program in 2008, 2011, we had kids from all over the world. And resilient kids look the same and non-resilient kids look the same, right? So to answer sort of the second question, um, you know, I think what's interesting right now is there's a lot of emphasis on mental health, which is awesome. And we've done a good job destigmatizing, and we have work to do, of course, destigmatizing mental health um, and addiction. However, what I always try to help families understand and the school system by proxy is you can be empathic and you can be trauma-informed without accommodating, okay? Now, this is important. Empathy does not mean accommodation. And when you work with OCD, which I specialize in OCD and working particularly with families with an OCD teen or, or child, you don't wanna reassure them every five seconds because that by proxy is the compulsion. The child will seek you to be right the compulsion vis-a-vis -vis the reassurance. So there's a way to be empathetic incredibly um, uh, compassionate while also asking your child to do hard and not lowering the bar. And I think we're in a weird place, to be honest, with the schools. Um, I'm not blaming anything on the schools, but with we're trying to figure out how do we meet someone where they're at in a culturally competent way, and culturally meaning culture, race, of course, sexuality, gender identity, but also from a diagnostic standpoint, and not everyone understands that basically accommodation, um, and I'm not talking, my wife's dyslexic, so I'm not talking about uh, a 504 plan or an IEP where someone has extra time. Oh, those accommodations for a child who meets any kind of um, uh, criteria is wonderful. But this idea of softening and lowering the bar, I think is very caustic. Um, and it's an interesting place. We've swung the pendulum uh, very far, I think, in, in, in a different direction. Again, like to that second question, and, you know, this is an extreme circumstance where a child has decided to take their own lives. Like, where, how do they get there, Thomas? Like, honestly, like, I don't understand. Like, such a big question. I mean, put it this way if you have intractable depression, intractable, meaning that uh, you've been through, myriad treatment modalities. Uh, my heart goes out to that person and by proxy that family. If you have bipolar, if you have schizophrenia, anything that's organic, meaning that is not um, contextually based or situationally based, right? You're on an island, you know, versus you're, you're here, you're there. Um, that's so difficult. Um, and I obviously don't know any of the, the, the circumstances surrounding that case. Um, in, in my career, unfortunately, I have absolutely um, you know, I've uh, seen younger and younger kids in the in the time I've been doing this work, without a doubt, expressing suicidality or suicidal ideation. And again, there's layers of acuity from, you know, scratching to carving to, you know, burning to things like that in terms of self-harm or in terms of the level of, of, uh, 
of need. One of the things I just will say, I mean, just as a PSA to any parent, I just did this today with a parent coaching client is their, 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 their child who was about the same age did express very low acuity, meaning not a high risk, uh, passive death wish, no plan associated with that. Right. I said, you have to take your son to the hospital. And here's why you do that. Because number one, we want to teach our kids to be impeccable with their word, which is one of the four agreements, which is a great, a book, great book. We want our kids to have integrity. We don't want our kids to be the boy or girl who cried wolf. And so you can say, which I coach them to say in a very loving way, just so you know, you know, and they, they were now in a different space and it really had more to do with manipulation. But I said, in the future, if you have you know, any concerns around be, being able to keep yourself safe and you're being casual with your life, which is the most precious thing in the world, we're going to bring you to a place that will not only keep you safe, that has trained professionals that can support you and give you tools so that you can heal yourself. And we're going to take you to the hospital. If it is manipulating, I assure you, after sitting in the ER for maybe hours, you know, and not necessarily having the most amazing experience in the world, even if that child recants whatever they said, it's still a great frame of reference for them. It tells them that, you know what, when I'm in need, mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad or whomever um, are there for me and they take me seriously. So I don't need to go to the umpteenth degree. I don't have to, right, metastasize my symptomatology to be seen and to be heard. So it's a really powerful thing. And if they are obviously are manipulating, I assure you it wasn't a great night. You know what I mean? They didn't get much out of it. So. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated, I mean, I don't have, we don't have that much time to talk about managed care and the need to increase access and, and all kinds of boundaries and things like that. Um, so it is a weird place. I, I, the, the thing that I keep trying to help families understand is we need to be leaders, right? Leaders create more leaders. And we have to, again, have the optics or have a vision board of what it is we're trying to inculcate and who we're trying to develop. It doesn't mean controlling or cajoling or contriving an outcome, but ostensibly what are the habits, what's the core that we want a child to have? And if we see from an audit standpoint, you know, that they're kind of receding, let's say, um, or they're not able to level up to the developmental appropriate challenges, we need to step in and we need to support that. You know, your son being uh, a hybrid, let's say, you know, your son sounds like a Tesla. He's a great, awesome, amazing vehicle, but he needs a recharge. And that's a beautiful thing. And we are neither introvert nor extrovert. Um, yet the reality is, is that's a great social learning. The worst thing you could do would be to like hover and in there and like manipulate every little thing. He has to learn a little bit. And maybe he really likes that titillation and the rambunctiousness and that's awesome and gets the dopamine hits, but then maybe he hits the saturation point and he has to figure out how do I go self-soothe and how do I decompress? So I don't come home and maybe vomit up all over everybody and, and then kind of shift the dynamics in the house. Um, you know, and it's just always about kind of taking, you know, your child's temperature, your own internal temperature and figuring out where, where are the strengths, where are the weaknesses and how do we avoid obviously threats, but then how do we, migrate these weaknesses into opportunities for new growth. Yeah, look, I, I'm with you on that, Thomas. Like I, there's so much in what you just said. And for those that don't know you, you know, you're big on resilience. You do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, particularly with you and 
you're kids, you're out in the snow, you're doing hard shit. And I really resonate with that. Like I, I'm pretty big on, you know, like I do it with my staff, particularly the younger staff, like they'll, they'll push things towards the environment first. And I'm almost like ruthlessly about extreme ownership, even if the environment did have some responsibility, because I'm, I've got a paranoia almost that around with people that I care about, particularly young people that they'll start to outsource their control to the environment. So I'm almost like, they almost think I'm a hard ass because for me, it's you strengthen yourself first. And once you're strengthened, you can then impact your environment. But too many people are looking at impacting their environment through language and words and more rhetoric. And it's just, they're part of the problem. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Well, and it's, it's so sad because so much, you know, uh, so much is being coded you know, and people will code you um, without you even doing or participating in any sort of thing. And what I what I hear you saying about that, the staff is they have an external locus of control. And if you go back to your original query about why is it with parents? Well, they have an external locus of control. And when I do that exercise where it's simple, circle on a sheet of paper, write down everything outside your circle. They fill that shit up, man. That shit is filled up. You know, it's COVID, it's this, it's that. And COVID was a real thing. COVID definitely right, brought down our, let's say, the ROI of us being fed neuronally, 100%, right? So you get what you give. So there was less kind of going out, less coming in, 100%. However, COVID found the cracks. Those cracks existed for a long time. And what I've been saying to families for two and a half years is, you know how you know how water goes in a pothole and then at night at least up here <laughs> it freezes the water expands expands further expanding that hole right and the same process happens every time it rains you know and it gets cold so why are we allowing right the gap and one of the things that happens in every family i've ever worked with is there's issues of concavity and convexity so if I'm in active addiction and I am, have no emotional management, and let's say I also have um, a mental health, I have bipolar, let's, let's really make, make this tough, right? So I'm, I'm not only you know, struggling with uh, everything going on from a, a, you know, a detox, from a, you know, just neurobiology standpoint, I also have this untreated actual organic uh, mood lability, right? Highs and lows disorder. I'm gonna be going without a doubt convex into my family. I'm going to be having poor self-monitoring, poor self-control right in their face. By proxy, they're going to go concave, right? And these you'll see this happen in every situation where if somebody is going out, right, because they don't have good, again, inner, like you said, you know, inner controls or inner discipline, um, that's a problem. And if someone by proxy also is going concave and allowing whatever outside is happening to influence them, that's a problem too. So we don't want to have issues where someone is ostensibly, you know, seeding ground as a parent and allowing their child to go into them, which I see every day with oppositional defiant kids who are very entitled, who don't know how to accept no as an answer, who again are actually uncomfortable with how large their world is. And I say all the time, you have to bookend the world, you know, these kids. Their world can't be this big. You've set them up, you know, from a neurobiology standpoint to be titillated 
buy so much of this. How do we get the toothpaste back in the tube? It's very difficult. Well, now, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to take the reins back from Black Beauty and we're going to get kicked in the face probably, you know? So, so I agree with you completely that there's so much exporting rather than looking very simply, what can I control here? What's my next right move? You know, um, one of the things I love asking families is just something simple, like what can I and how can I questions? I have them ask themselves that throughout the day about one particular topic. And there has to be a proximal time frame. So rather than like, how can I be a better dad this year? There's no accountability to that. You know, what can I do today to increase my presence with my son? Um, how can I manage my son's BS a little bit better today? How can I say no to my son this afternoon, right? What can I do to set my child up to have better emotional regulation skills this afternoon? If I ask myself that in the morning, that creates a pattern. The world will give me the opportunity to punt, you know, the responsibility that I have and to continue to maintain the status quo or to actually step into courage and address that. So those are very powerful questions. How can I, what can I? about one particular behavioral change that we want to see happen with your child or in your family and by proxy in yourself. How can I not reassure my child, you know, this afternoon when they come to me with their obsessional loop, right? Knowing full well that kid's going to devolve and that's going to be a shit show. But what can I do, right, to reach for the heart and try to connect with my son, you know, this afternoon? Stuff like that. I mean, how can I even be more present, you know, this afternoon? Stuff like that. Oh, so much in that. I, I love this kind of conversation. I, I, it, uh, it reminds me of my conversations I've had with Joe DeSena at Spartan, you know, who's always really inspired me as you have as a dad, you know, like he is all over it and he will not take the easiest, softer route. Like he, he said to me every day, you've got a decision you can make as a parent. Like, am I going to take the easier, softer way? Or am I going to be what people might think a bit of a lunatic and a, you know, like he's a hard ass and he, he exposes his kids to purposeful suffering. And, you know, he has wealth, he has wealth, but he still makes them, uh, he makes things hard. And I am inspired by that. And, and, you know, like I go out with a healing, it's a trail runner and we live out in, in, you know, in the bush, in the mountain. And uh, for me, that is, the environment which I use to temper what I know to your, what you just said now about the world going to be big and be yelling at him for all different directions. What I try to do is keep our home life and our environment at home small. And, you know, we don't have the TV on a lot. It's we're outdoors a lot. Like I try to keep it real basic and, and, and expose him even now to the right level of suffering, pushing himself, pushing his body. I know what that will do is it'll gel as he gets a little bit older and we continue to live like that, that will build confidence, real confidence. And that confidence will give him the confidence in the world. And it's not going to be this fictitious ego inflation piece. It's going to be coming from a real sense of self-efficacy and knowledge and confidence in himself because he's exposed himself to, to difficulty. And I take that from your, your message. And I, and I see you do that as well. Like, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Shay Eskew, who uh, is a multiple uh, Ironman, you know, very uh, good dad, very dedicated father. 
he said to me once that someone said to him, you know, I just want my kids to have an easier life than I did. And Shay turned around and said to the guy, well, why? What do you have against your children? <laughs> Shay said, you know, like- A hundred percent. And I think then, so so here's the thing that 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 I help parents and I struggle with this myself. This, this weekend, uh, I'll be the first one to admit, I um, definitely didn't help my son um, when he was crying, walking off the field, um, having played horrible. My son plays at a really high level of soccer. Um, I played in college. Um, I played semi-professionally. I did not play professionally. I'm not an iron athlete person, but I do set a high bar uh, for myself, as does my wife. Um, but it's also a loving kindness, the right difficult. And he came off the field crying. And I was like, yeah, you play like shit. <laughs> I was just like, and, and he's, he's 11 and a half. And I was like, I, I, I don't know what you want from me. I'm like, I don't know what you want from me. So I was way a little bit ahead of missing the opportunity because he already had felt it. I didn't need to do that. And one of the great questions to ask, you know, in that moment, if I can go back in time was, you know, what do you think you did well? What didn't you do well? What do you want to, what do you want to do with that? Where do you go from here? What's the next right move, et cetera. Um, as opposed to me projecting onto my kids. But we have to lead. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So in 2008, when I moved up to Lake Placid, um, Lake Placid is a very different place than where I grew up in Long Island. And, and at the time, I had a Cush private practice outside of New York City and uh, was running an LGBT center for teens, which I loved. And um, we took this huge risk because I was recruited to be this clinical director of this wilderness therapy program. Uh, working with some of the highest risk kids in the world, in the hardest modality in the world. And what I always tell families, and I think I'm crazy, is wilderness therapy is um, the most effective modality that exists on the planet Earth. It is my favorite place to send a C-suite executive because you can't hide in the woods. I mean, not only I'd be here all day talking about the, the benefits of wilderness therapy. Number one, you're back to the natural biorhythm. So you take a team that is it's so difficult from what's called the differential diagnoses to discern, is this really bipolar or is this really what's called major depressive disorder? Or is this a kid that literally is sleep deprived, which is the only time our neurotransmitters right, can replenish themselves? Is this a uh, someone that does have you know, significant psychiatric issues or are they in this toxic relationship and have body image issues and have been you know, uh, starving themselves as well? So, I'm up there and I'm the clinical director and I don't know shit about really living in the Adirondack State Park, which is the only, I think, state park in the world where you can live. And it's 6 million acres and Yosemite is only 450,000. And so we're in the middle of nowhere and trying to keep 62 kids from running and killing themselves and actually benefiting and dealing with very high influence families. And we arrive, and then two months later, my dad dies and my grandmother dies in the same week. And then the week later, my wife goes to grad school. And I'm now hiking to a group one night. This is uh, November. I'm hiking to a group. It's about 18 degrees. I'm hiking to a group to go and assess a, uh, a teen because I wrote the safety protocol that within 48 hours, a licensed clinician needed to put eyes on. Um, and so I'm hiking to a group, and I trip, and my headlamp goes flying. and it goes somewhere in the snow and it's pitch black because it's at night and it's 18 degrees and it's going to drop to negative 25 and I'm going to die. And I'm laying on the floor because I trip and I start cursing up at this, 
stars saying F you God, because I am still grieving my best friend who is my father and my grandmother, who is like the matriarch of my family. And I'm so uncomfortable. And my wife is three and a half hours away at grad school and I'm just screaming. And it's right uh, like after having my nice little pity party that I say, you know what, just, just like, see if you're, anything's broken. Let's wiggle your little, you know, your big toe. Let's start with your big toe. And then, then you move your feet and stuff like that. And then on my hands and knees, like a child, like searching through the snow, eventually there's, I see this little bit of light after, you know, getting through the snow. And then I go and hike two and a half miles to a high risk teen and deescalate them, assess them, and then hike like four miles back to my car. If I don't set my kids up for success, how are they going to handle that? Now, not everyone's going to choose that challenge. I always say it's challenge by choice. But don't come to me and don't work with me if you think that I'm going to co-sign on a low bar philosophy and that we are not going to challenge our kids to grow and to have grit lean in. By proxy, this this uh, two years uh, ago, um, we went to the Adirondacks, just my boys and I, and we did two high peaks. Again, I'm not, you know, Mr. Iron Athlete guy, and I'm not sitting here. These aren't accolades about titles or what have you, but we did two 4,000 peaks in one day and we get to the trailhead and my kids are wearing teen sandals, you know, like the strap sandals. And they go, I don't have boots. And I go, that sucks for you. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, like I, I set them up for success. We've done this a million times. They have beautiful, awesome, you know, hiking boots. And earlier that day I had packed everything else for them. And I was like, you guys just got to have your hiking boots. That's it. Hiking boots at the door. Sure enough, we get there. They have sandals. They did two 4,000 peaks, two 4,000 peaks, right? And, and you know, even if the process is mired in push-pull, it's the other thing I say all the time. People come to me whenever someone, I, I do discovery calls, and I say no. I say no probably 80% of the time to any coaching clients. And people are flummoxed because these people are people who no one says no to. And I just, I'm like, you're not ready. Like, you know, you're not ready to, to really lean in and take a look at yourself. Um, and people, they say all the time when in these discovery calls, I just want to be happy. I want my family to be happy. My response is, fuck happy. Happy is a fleeting feeling. And I say this all the time. You're trying to maximize joy, right? Without maximizing all the uncomfortable feelings. There's really only comfortable and uncomfortable. And when the tide comes in, it raises the $32 million or whatever, $1 billion yacht, as well as it raises the 15-footer. So we have to be okay with all feelings being raised. And that's the same thing that we need to do as parents, is we have to allow our kids to feel more fully. And this is a very controversial thing I'm about to say, but I say this all the time. We have a hard time feeling shame. I'm not about shaming anything, and I'm so glad we're destigmatizing and reducing shame um, for anybody who's ever had to raise their hand and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm in recovery or, or, or I'm addict or, you know, I, I need to go to treatment. We need to reduce shame and all barriers to someone accessing support without a doubt. However, shame is just one feeling. And I said the other night to a client who is overweight and has um, some other issues and they're trying to address. And I said, you know, the moment you set foot on that treadmill or that trail or that whatever, you are going to experience shame and a little bit of embarrassment. And we have to be okay with that. We have to learn how to feel uncomfortable better. That essentially is what wellness and recovery is. And this idea that we just sell the feel goods. Now, I'm not saying that we should ever not 
encourage and and allow someone to feel so empowered and amazing because they did do said smaller thing because we want those micro wins but the the idea that shame or feeling bad that's the weirdest thing going on right now is that there's a little bit too much of this i want to just be happy um and i think that is very uh scary and uh, detrimental um without going through all the discomfort. And I think, I think that's another thing for teens too, is there's so much research, oh my God, on, on, you know, the comparative analysis and the imposter syndrome and the living vicariously through said Insta famous person who doesn't show the whole story and doesn't really do a, doesn't do a, a, a good service, right. To helping people understand what it is to supposedly get there. There's a lot in that. And just one comment I'll make before I, I move on to one last question. With that, I think we become very interested in eradicating shame and how others make other people feel ashamed. But the reality is there's too much subjectivity there. Someone's always going to feel shame sometime. And so the question is, do we try to eradicate shame or do we realize that shame is just one microsecond of a feeling, part of the human experience that will never go away because it's part of how we evolved? You know, and I think that's that's interesting that you bring that up. So I just want to move to one last question before we wrap up. In this whole piece of trying to manage kids and family, how do we, how do we, like I noticed with my wife, we call each other mom and dad. <laughs> like, and we don't have a problem with that. We joke about it. But like, how do we maintain our relationship with our spouse? as the dynamic is now shifted to partners and parenting? Because I think this is where a lot of people's sizzle fades and they realize 10 years later, once the kids are 18, shit, we don't really, we're not really into each other anymore, <laughs> right? Like we've been, we've been business partners in this transaction and we like, like, how do you, how do you manage that piece, man? You know what I love is like this. This is like kind of what's called doorknob therapy. Is the hand, the client's hand is on the doorknob, and the session's like about to end, and they're like, "Oh, by the way, here's like uh, a giant." Huge... <laughs> sorry, I asked the huge no, 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 no. It's good. I'm saying it's it's obvious about you, and I appreciate the personalization. I can identify with that. So can my wife. Oh my god, if she was here, we started dating in 1998, 1998, and we got married in 2004, and then we founded two businesses together. And it was so bad where like, you're like having sex and you're like, did you do that thing? You know what I mean? It's like, did you call that person back that big referral? You know, you're like, wait, what? Like, what's going on? Like, what about what's going on right now? No, it is so hard. It is, that is, uh, that is such a challenge for any, any, any couple. And, and, um, obviously date nights are so important. Boundaries are so important. Um, I always say, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. I am guilty of, I love that my kids are having opportunities that I didn't have um, for financial reasons in terms of their soccer development. Um, I was playing in a town league, you know, till I was 13. I didn't play club till I was 13. My kids have played club since they were four. Um, yet that is a big chunk of time and energy. And so I have to be careful not to be a masochist. So we can't climb up on any crosses. And, um, you know, when the family needs wood or if our relationship needs wood. So the point is that, you know, if we're building 
uh, something that's not sustainable, it's very important to make contact with your partner and also to prioritize, right, your relationship. Because when you two are well, by proxy, the whole family's well. So make sure that you have boundaries, you do check in. Um, it's really hard. It's very hard. My wife and I struggle a lot with the business talk, right? And so it's for us, we try and fail at this all the time. Little things like making eye contact, believe it or not, right? Stopping what you're doing. Even something is like, how was your day? And just like, could take five minutes. That's again, one of those touch points, right? Before we're, you know, two ships passing in the night, which we are. Uh, she's a teacher. She gets up at a different hour than I do. Um, I, I see clients late sometimes. I'm then coaching soccer at literally 8.45, 9 o'clock with the kids. Uh, um, <clears throat> so important and and you have different languages of love i would just ask her you know if you don't already know what are the things that make her tick what are the things that make you tick and and that's okay i mean one of the things i don't know enough i'm not treating you guys or anything but one of the things i respect about you and i and by proxy uh your partner is that you do look like you take care of yourself very well and um that's awesome i hope whatever her version of your running, you know, your running is to whatever her thing is. I hope that you guys are doing that and passing the baton. I'm sure you are. And I'm sure there's moments of, you know, resentment that get built up and, and missing things. But my biggest thing with, with couples, uh, when I treat couples and with myself and my wife, and I've been in couples therapy, we've been in couples therapy twice, and I've had an individual therapist, is not saying always and never. That's the most best advice I could ever give is you always and you never because you flatten the person and you miss the litany of the relationship. And when you begin together for a long time, it's very easy to put the, you know, the dishes that were left in the sink up on a, uh, you know, on a pedestal, you know what I mean? Or the laundry or whatever, but trying to see the forest and realizing, you know, that there's so much value being brought mate we just had that argument on the weekend it became a situation that became it always and it's it was you're right like it's it's oh, language is uh important isn't it and it, you know as my mentor says and i love when he says this he goes your relationship is the space between you and your partner and what you do not what you think mm-hmm little acts of kindness, make her tea. But, the, but I, what I like about that, which every couple I'm, I'm so guilty of, and my problem is I'm fast. I have like a very fast processing speed. Whereas my wife uh, is a, we always joke on fried chicken and she's a pot roast because she's always like, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. And, um, and that's great when it comes to some things, but not when it comes to, you know what I mean? Do you want to go out with so-and-so to get drinks later or whatever? Um, and there's times that she she struggles to kind of make a quick decision. There's other times I'm already climbing halfway up Everest, turning around, being like, why did you abandon me? She's like, why are you at, at Everest? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I didn't slow the fudge down to be like, I want to climb Mount Everest and we should probably do it in a year and let's plan it, you know? So so understanding that and and what I hear from your mentor, which I like, is it's what you do, not what you think. And we, the moment we start creating theories, and we have the tapes, you know, the tapes, the CDs, or the A tracks going, you're you're apt because it's just you're not even living, you're not even living uh, in presence with this person. It's a broken feedback loop that you're creating the echo chamber. So that's great advice. 
All right, Tom. Well, look, we're going to leave it there. I loved this conversation. I know so, uh, I really know that the audience is going to get a lot of value from this. Uh, and again, I really appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Before we go, where can we find you? Where can our audience find you, Thomas? Um, if anyone's interested, obviously, in a coaching session and exploring that further, they can go to thomasmillercoaching.com. Folks can certainly find me um, on LinkedIn as well. All right, brother. Thank Peace. you so much. You'd be well, man.